All right, so we are in this series right now where we are talking about certainty, uh, mainly because we realize that the world we live in is very uncertain. Last week, we dove into this topic looking at the story of the birth of Jesus. Now, when we were looking at the birth of Jesus, we found that the whole story was shrouded in uncertainty. I want to just recap for a second. I want you to remember last week, we talked about the fact that Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, comes to Joseph and says to Joseph, hey, Joseph, um, I'm pregnant. Now, they were pledged to be married. They were not yet married. A pledge in the Old Testament was two families coming together to agree that this would happen, this marriage would happen. It was way more than an engagement today. You can break an engagement today with emotional consequences, but nothing else. Back in that day, if you broke the pledge, you, had to be, you were issued a certificate of divorce. And for a woman in the first century, that was a devastating uh, um, impact. And so she comes to him and she says, by the way, I'm pregnant. And just so you know, an angel told me that it was God that I am pregnant with. And I, I, it's just an absurdity. And, and like you, if you're in the room right now and you're not a Christian and you're just you know, skeptical of these things, you need to know that the first century was just as skeptical as you are today. When Joseph heard the news about the fact that Mary was pregnant with God, Joseph's response to her was, I don't believe it. Because his immediate response was, I'm going to actually divorce you. He feels betrayed Joseph doesn't have a sense that that what Mary has done has been true to him. And so he's completely uncertain about her, uncertain about this child that she's carrying. And it's not until later when God sends an angel to Joseph to say, Joseph, what Mary said to you was not a lie. This is true. You have been chosen to be the one who parents and Mary, the one who parents Jesus in this life, the son of God. And it was just had to be a crazy, crazy reflection of what was happening in their lives at that moment. So now we're going to Luke chapter two, and we're going to look at the story from a different angle. I'll tell you about that in a second, but let's just go ahead and read Luke chapter two, verse one. This is happening right after, um, right after the passage that we looked at last week, and they're on their way. They're moving from Nazareth, right? They're moving from Nazareth, which is where Jesus will grow up, to Bethlehem, which Jesus will be born in. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. You're like, why is this in the Bible? Like, how does this help me? Like, what is the point of this? Let me tell you what it is. When we moved camera angles, and I want you to think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the Bible, first four books of the New Testament, as different camera angles of what took place in the entirety of Jesus's ministry. Luke is not an eyewitness of, of what took place. He's a physician, he's a scholar, and he's somebody who talked to eyewitnesses, right, and did research on this and came up with what we have as the book of Luke, okay? In those days, Caesar Augustus. So Caesar is the king over Rome, and he is one in a line of many Caesars who will rule over Rome. And in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. What's a census? A census is the counting up of how many people are in the the nation. Why? Well, because the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, wants to tax the people. In order to be able to do that, he needs to know how many people are actually in his empire. Now, one of the things I want you to realize is the reason why Luke, who is more detail-oriented, writes the way he does here is he's rooting the historical figure of Jesus in time and space. In other words, it's not just about a story. This is not a parable 
the story of Jesus, it was actually under the rule of Caesar Augustus. And also, it was the first census, not the only census, but the first census that took place under Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria at that time. So you can go back in secular history and see these two characters and go, yes, they were real characters. They were about 40 years apart from one another that took place here. And we can see that here in this time frame is when Jesus was born into the world. The other thing I want you to see about this that's really big picture is In those days, Caesar Augustus did something that he wanted to do so that he and Rome could have more money to be able to govern the nation. It had nothing to do with the Jewish people or Jesus the Messiah. None of that was of interest to him at all. The Jewish sect inside uh, inside the Roman Empire was a small group of people that he could care less about. In other words, God was orchestrating circumstances by using a secular power to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in the Bible that was prophesied 750 years before the birth of Jesus, that this Jesus would not be born in Nazareth, but he would be born in Bethlehem. So God is orchestrating, and this is what we're going to learn today. God is orchestrating the world events that are taking place all around us right now. Verse five, he went there to register with Mary. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now remember, this is again, this is a time of tension for Joseph and Mary. It is eased, the tension, the uncertainty is eased with Mary's visitation from an angel and Joseph's visitation from an angel. And so there is clarity, now they have clarity about the fact that this, what Mary has, what Mary is carrying is from God, that they're on God's team, that they're on God's path, and this is right. But this didn't stop the consequences of what would take place as Mary and Joseph are taking a five-day trip from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem in Galilee. And so what would take place is she's nine months pregnant, basically, because she's going to give birth there pretty quick. And, and, and everybody can see it. And you, you know how people are. They gossip, they talk. And same thing happened in the first century. You've got these unwed people. She's pregnant. They're looking at Joseph going, we know what you did. We know what you did was wrong. She's immoral for letting it happen. It's all bad. It's all wrong. And there the tongues are wagging. And so Joseph and Mary are square in the center of God's will at this moment. This is exactly where they're supposed to be. I want you to see a couple things. Just because they're in the middle of God's will right now doesn't mean that they're not going to have cringeworthy moments in their life. It doesn't mean that they're going to have moments where they don't, things don't unfold exactly the way that, God, that they want them to. So I want you to see this principle up here. Being right with God doesn't always mean that he gives us the circumstances that we want. Listen, if you leave the room with this right now, you will be ahead of tons of Christians and most of the people on the planet. Okay? I just want you to understand that. Like, move this from your head to your heart. Being right with God doesn't always mean that he gives us the circumstances that we, what we want. What are the implications of that? Well, number one, the implication is when suffering and bad things happen to you, it may have absolutely nothing to do with you. And it doesn't mean that God's being mean or bad to you. And I'll show you why in, in just a minute. But for some of us, this is one of those things that actually short circuits the faith of many people around us. I bet you can think of somebody who this exact thing, their expectations were different than what God wanted for their life for the moment. And that short circuited something inside of them. They walked away from the church. They walked away from God. They said, you know what? No more. Something terrible happened. I'm out. I'm not doing it anymore. So here's a question up on the screen. Why? Why do so many people short-circuit their faith when their circumstances don't match their expectations? Here's why. 
Expectations are really, really powerful. They are. Expectations can either bring blessing into your life or they can bring failure into your life. And it has everything to do with the preferences that we prefer and we base our expectations on. A lot of us walk around with certain expectations. I heard a lady, she, we went on to lunch one time and uh, she, uh, she said, Pastor Mike, I don't believe that God wants any Christian to suffer. <laughs> and I'm like, That's not in the Bible. And that's just an expectation she has, right? This is her view of the world, right? And if it's not in here, that's not a steady view to have. Because you, you can look at 10 pages, any 10 pages in the Bible, and you're going to find somebody suffering in some way, in some situation. Suffering is not in a sign that you are out of God's will. It's not. It's the sign that we live in a broken and fallen world that's in decay, even in science, we look at that, we call that entropy. The entire universe is, co- is basically moving from organization to disorganization. Everything is eventually falling apart. And so in the same way, we don't have to look at God and go, God, why are you so, why, why are you so inconsistent? Why are you so frustrated? Why are you so bad to me when bad things happen? Because God is actually working things out for our good. Now, a few years, several years back, um, a lady came to me, she's part of our church, and she has a friend who's a Christian, uh, and she's a Christian, and she is, you know, she, she's praying because her friend got cancer, and this woman has three young kids, and it was really just, it was really hard. And so um, she does what is the right thing to do. She brings them before the elders of the church. James 5 says, you know, if somebody is sick, really sick, not common cold sick, but if you bring somebody, you know, who's really, really sick before the elders, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It doesn't promise that they'll be healed. It just promises that this is what we do as Christians. This is part of the process. And then she, pr- she prayed that God would heal this woman. And she brought up a lot of other people to pray that God would heal this woman. And then this woman dies. And in that moment, she has a faith crisis. So why do so many people short-circuit their faith when their circumstances don't match their expectations? I want you to see it up on the screen. We have to align our expectations with God's will. Only then will we truly be happy. And you go, well, it wasn't God's will for her to be healed in that situation. No, it obviously wasn't because it didn't happen. I I want you to catch this. This is so important. Because what happens to us when we have moments like that, she she had an expectation. She expressed it to me. She goes, Mike, I did all the right things. I prayed. I brought it before the elders. God should have healed her. God should have fixed this situation. And I'm angry with God about that. And she pulled away from church. She pulled away from God. She pulled away from the whole deal. And why? Because she said, God did not meet my expectations. Now, I have two simultaneous feelings about that situation at the same time. One, it's super presumptuous to say to the God of heaven, you will do what I say. That's a very arrogant position. And then the other side of it is a little bit more humble. I get it. I get the fact that she is brokenhearted and busted up by the fact that the plan of God was different than the plan that she had in her head but she walked away from God because of that. And you know why? You know what the mechanism for that is, right? Years ago, I was on a men's retreat with our guys. We, we lead this men's retreat, and guys, think about it, uh, every year where we bring about, I don't know, I think last year we had 70 guys uh, up there, but I take a bunch of guys up to North Carolina. The rich part of my family has a uh, mountain house, and we rent up like four. I have to clarify that. I don't have a mountain house. Uh, up, on the, up on the lake, 
and, uh, and up on Lake Nantahala. We go up there. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's amazing. Awesome time. We were climbing this uh, waterfall, and I fell. And uh, so I went to the hospital um, a while later, and I have like eight pins in my shoulder. It's great. No problem. I don't feel it all. Great. Eight pins in my shoulder. But the recovery process was terrible because they gave me a, like oxycodone or something like that. And I'm like, nope. Been a counselor too long to see that. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. So I just kind of gutted it through. It was terrible. 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 And you know what pain does is it takes your whole world and it reduces it down to just the smallest component. So you know what I wasn't doing the week after my surgery? Helping people take their next step toward Christ. That's what I was not doing. I was no interest in that whatsoever. It was my, my shoulder was dying. I was just like, I need to get through this. It was terrible. And that same kind of thing with physical pain is the same thing that happens with spiritual pain sometimes when something terrible and tragic happens in your life. Your whole world goes from this down to this one pain and that's all you can see in the moment. That's all she can see. Now, I want to just be hypothetical with you, do like a little case study. I want you to think bigger for a second, because when we're not in those moments and those places, we can put things in our heart so that when those times come, we're able to endure them, okay? Here's one of those things. So I want you to imagine that, um, I don't know what happened to the, the three, let's just call them three little girls. I'm not sure if they were little girls or not, that this woman who died had. So we look at that and we go, well, it's terribly immoral of God to do something terrible like that because these little girls, they didn't do anything wrong and now they've lost their mom and their dad's out of the picture so he's not participating and now they go and live with some random aunt somewhere. Let's just say that all of that was true for the sake of, the, of, of what we're talking about. But now these kids are going through really, really suffering, hardship, very difficult season and so they come together as a little unit. Why? Because it's all they got. They have each other. You know, this is, this is our family. This is what's left over. And imagine that like as time goes on, 20, 30, 40 years, they're, they're growing and they've become full adults and they're struggling. And they just, you know, because something broke really early on and it was painful for them. It was really hard for them. They were struggling. And just imagine that in the middle of all of that struggle, because I think this is how many of us actually became Christians, is that in the middle of the struggle, the Lord reached out and said, hey, I love you. I'm here for you. And you don't have to walk alone. And these three kids become followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, to die as a Christian is gain. It means that when the woman who had the three children passed away in this life, the greatest moment of her whole life was when she opened her eyes in the kingdom of God and saw Jesus. It was greater than the three children being born. It was greater than her wedding day. It was greater than any moment she ever had because all the fulfillment of all the desires of her all of her life were found in this one person, Jesus. And she gets to enjoy him forever and ever and ever. And 50 or 60 years has gone by and those little girls, they come and they arrive too. And they get to live forever in heaven together with their mom in the peace of Jesus. That's the big picture we stop short because the pain takes our worldview and it shrinks it down to this one thing. Something happened at my former church. It was terrible. I'm not going to church anymore. I'm hearing it over and over and over again. And I want to say, yes, I know that was terrible. It was awful. It was not good. But take this thing and make it bigger again because God is not done. I want you to think about it this way. I want you to look at it from, the, from a different perspective. So we have to align our expectations with God's will. Only then will we be truly hap, happy. So here, think about it this way. I want you to think about your life as a, a, there, there, I want you to think about your life and the life of everyone that you know. And in those lives, there is a giant river that runs right through it. We're not getting new agey or weird here. This, we're just, we're, I'm just an illustration. I want you to imagine that a giant river runs through your life, right? 
And uh, I have experience with this because uh, I take our pastors, our teaching pastors, like on three or four retreats a year where we go away for three or four days. We go up to Port Orange, stay at a, at a hotel up there, and we eat at this, uh, this, this really cool place on the um, intercoastal over there where New Smyrna comes together, where Daytona or, or Port Orange come together right there at the jetties. If you've been around Orlando, you know that area really well. And uh, the current is really rapid inside of that river. Like as it's flowing out to the ocean, it is fast, really fast. Now, every time I'm there, I think to myself, I could swim across to New Smyrna. Like I can swim, I can go, I can go across. Like I'm a really good swimmer. I'm not bragging. I'm just better than you at swimming. Like I'm really, really good at swimming. And so, so here's, so here, I think I can make it. But then I started reading about it because I'm like, why don't people do this? Because it's not that far. And then I found out that like the currents, one thing, the sharks are another, but the, the, eddy, the, eddies, the eddies are in there. They're spinning around little whirlpools and stuff like that. Super dangerous area, right? That's why people don't swim in there. And so I think, well, we could go back up to the restaurant where the current's there and there's none of that stuff. And here's what I know. I could jump in there, even though the current's fast, and I could start swimming really hard and I could make ways. I could make my way forward. It's gonna take all of my effort and all of my time and all of my energy to do it. And here's what I know. Eventually, that river it's going to overtake me and I'm not going to be able to do it forever. And then it's going to take me wherever it wants me to go. That is the will of God in our life. You can refuse the will of God and you can move against it and you can swim as hard as you can and you're going to make ways in the directions of sin and wickedness that you want to walk in or just confusion that you're going to walk in or uncertainty and you can make ways. But eventually you're going to end because, and it's going to take you where God wants you to go anyway because you're going to be empty and tired. And unfortunately, where you arrive, the place where God wants you to be, you're, you're going to be of no use to anybody because you've spent all your time just racing against the river. And that's exactly where some of us are today. We're just exhausted. We're overwhelmed. Every single task that we have to do and all the parties that we need to go to and all the stuff that needs to happen right now on Christmas to make our lives wonderful. You need to be discerning. What is my expectation versus what God's will is for my life? You know how I swim really fast? I swim with the river instead of trying to swim against it. But, but, but we have to align our expectations with God's, wills. God's will. The, these expectations and God's will are not always the same thing because here's what you need to know about expectations. They're just preferences, they're just preferences. They're just what you think should be happening right now. So <laughs> people do this all the time. I know more about people's personal preferences than, than you would imagine because they express them to me sometimes. You know, have you thought about singing this song? <laughs> Which is funny because I don't even do any of the songs. Uh, so no, I haven't, but you could talk to a worship person. Uh, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about that? People do that. Why? Because it's the preferences that they carry into the church. They carry with them. These are their expectations when they bring with them. Can I share one that's funny? <laughs> one of my elders approached me a few months ago and uh, there's a woman that caught him out there in the, in the lobby. And she goes, you an elder? And he's like, yep. She goes, can I, uh, can I ask you a question? He goes, sure. She goes, what's with the hats? And he's like, pardon me? And she is like, what's with the hats on stage with the worship people? And he goes, I'm sorry, I'm not following. And she goes, it's not good to have hats. It's not inappropriate to have hats on stage, especially in God's church. 
And I was like, she said that? He's like, yeah. And I was like, it's not in there. It's not in there. And I'm like, that's what that is? Is that Southern, not Christian. Bless your heart. So we have to, we have to align our expectations, which are really just our preferences with what is most important, which is really God's will. She, she said, she goes, I can get past the tattoos. <laughs> I just love it so much. Um, and and, and here, here's, here's the reason why. I don't want us ever to communicate something like that to somebody who's not a follower of Jesus. You know what I mean? Oh, Jesus would love you if you didn't have those tattoos. We have to take our expectations and align them with God's will. But you know what happens when we do? This is when we find truly, truly happiness, true happiness in our life. Because now I'm swimming with the river. The, the river comes through my life every once in a while. And sometimes as the river flows through my life, it has nothing to do with me. You might right now be in a situation where things are just upside down for you and bad. And you have to look at yourself for sure and go, are these the consequences of me making bad decisions? That's always something we have to do. But sometimes you have to look at yourself and go, no, they're not. This is just the fact that God is working something through my life right now that may have absolutely nothing to do with me, that he's doing something bigger in the world around me. And I just happen to get swept up in it. And for some of you, you need to turn around right now and realize that the reason why you're so exhausted is because you're not walking in God's will and you're not discerning what you should do versus what you shouldn't do. There's a lot of stuff that we're doing right now that we just need to say, hey, I can let that go. So how do we know though? Like, how do we discern that? How do we figure that out? What creates discernment for us? You, you might th- say, well, private revelation, I'll pray to God and he'll give you direction like that. I personally don't always have that experience. That's not always the experience of most Christians that God comes to you and gives you very specific stuff every single day. Every single day. I actually believe the most clear teaching that we have about God comes from the Bible. I believe that you can trust it with all your heart. I believe that it will give clarity to your life. So can I, can I show you something that you don't see and it's not preached on a whole lot? It's not on any bumper stickers that I've ever seen and you don't have it memorized. Philippians 1.29, anybody quote it? I didn't think so. Here's the reason why. Here it is. For it has been granted to you and me as Christians on behalf of our relationship with Jesus Christ, not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for him. Wait, hold on. So, I get to believe in Jesus, and then I also get to suffer? I mean, where's that on the bumper sticker? Like, it's like, suffering for Jesus, Grace Church. <laughs> the Lord's calling. <laughs> so, so, so for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And the reason why I bring this up is because if you know that ahead of time, when it happens... It's not something that's abnormal or strange in your life. It's part of being part of a broken, entropic world. It's falling apart. It's in decay. And so are we. But we get to believe in him and trust in him with all of our heart. And also, you know what we're going to do? We're going to suffer for a little while. But you need to also know this, that suffering is not the final word for the Christian. It's never the final word. And here it is. First Peter 5.10 says this, and the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ. That means for all of you who are going to heaven, that's just how we're gonna like, like summarize that. For all of you who are going to heaven, right? 
after you have suffered a little while. And this is, this is, this is the hard part, because for us, a little while is like a few minutes. But sometimes God says, you know, I'm gonna, it might be a year. It might be five years. It's going to be a little while. You know why? Because when you look back in glory, it's like a page. Our entire 90 years of life is just a page. And the majority of who you are will be defined not here, but there. And the joy that we will have will not be here, but it will be there. That's not to say we don't have any joy now, but we have it there. After you have suffered a little while, he will himself do what? He's going to do this. He's going to restore you. He's going to bring you back. He's going to make you strong, stronger than you were before. He's going to make you firm. That means immovable, steadfast. That means enduring. You're going to be able to continue to get through things. You know why? Because when you go through hard things, you're able to endure hard things, right? So our story continues. They have now showed up at Bethlehem. They've, they've come from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Verse six says this, while Joseph and Mary were there, the time came for the baby to be born and Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, listen, I don't believe that stuff like this is written in the Bible um, in such a way to just inspire followership. If you and I were writing this, we wouldn't place him in a manger. It's a back room place where animals were fed. Jesus, God, coming into the world, would look much more like a, a king I kind of picture him like the rock, (laughs) really strong and powerful. And he would come in and he would say, follow me. And when you follow me, everything's going to be great. But he would not be us. Jesus came differently as a vulnerable child born to peasants who couldn't afford, nor could they have the connections for preferential treatment when they showed up in Bethlehem. Oh, what do you have available? Well, we've got this stall in the back room. Go put them in there. But there's beauty here. There's something incredible about it. In the birth of Jesus, we see God identifying with the vulnerable and the weak, those who cannot do for themselves. And from them comes one who will heal the world. And that's Jesus. Here's what he says about himself. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And when we think of poor here, we think of financially poor. He actually goes on to modify what he means by poor here. It's not financially poor. It includes the financially poor, but he has sent me to what? To proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Poor, prisoners, freedom, right? So, so he's saying essentially freedom from the prisoners, the physical freedom from people who are imprisoned, but also imprisoned by pornography and, lo- and fear and worry and anxiety, materialism, all the bondage that actually lives and is in our hearts in this world and recovery of sight for the blind, certainly for those who are physically blind. He did that when he was here, but also for those who are spiritually blind, those who cannot see the hope of the father and also to set the oppressed free. This is what Jesus said he did. So our mission at Grace has always been the same since day one. And that is to help people take their next steps toward Christ. Because here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe if you, don't, if you don't end with Jesus, what we did between here and there is of very little value. And here's the reason why. The Bible says it just another way. It says, what is a man, what is a woman who, who inherits the world and forfeits their soul in the process? In other words, they've missed the whole big picture. 
so you may have all the riches and all the wealth and all the power and all the security and all the beauty and all the goodness in life and then ultimately miss Jesus. And you've missed eternity. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I came to take those who are poor and broken in their hearts. And this is why James Denny, the writer, says that that the kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning, the good-hearted. It's for the desperate. That we come to him and we go, I'm broken, God. I need freedom from prisons that hold me in bondage. Recovery because I'm completely blind. I don't know you. I can't see you. I'm oppressed because I've oppressed myself and others around me. I live in a world of dysfunction and weirdness. I need you. Our mission's been Jesus from the very beginning. And years ago, he said, like, this is, the, this is how we're going to do that. We're going to teach people the Bible, Mike. We're going to show them exactly what the Bible says. Do it in a way that impacts both the heart and the mind so that they can believe that even when they are weak, one day they can be strong. You can be strong one day. And there's nothing wrong with you coming to this church. I'm hearing it nonstop. People are coming from other churches that are just busted up and messed up. And you feel like some of those people that bail because you're like, I I don't know what I can trust. I'm not certain about anything right now. I don't even know about you, guy. And that's fine. Come. Press in. Be weak for a season. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in that. But Jesus doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to make you more like his son, Jesus. And that's why, that's why, that's why when we get moved from weak to strong, we then turn back around to those who are weak. The strong protect the weak. It's what we do. It's what Christians do. And so like when we're doing these things, like this Christmas offering as an example of that, right? This is like, it sets us up for like the next seven months of being able to do care ministries inside the church and make a difference inside our city. This is not about raising money. So, so we can talk about it two ways. I want you to think about it. Like the, we can talk about it as like giving to and from. We give two things that are very important, like orphans. That's what we're doing right now. Like, like people, people that would not have a support system to care for them. Counseling for the brokenhearted who can't afford it. We're doing all kinds of things like that right now to advance the gospel in the city. It's amazing what God is doing through grace. It's incredible what we do together, period. But then there's also this other part of it, not just what we give to, but what we give from. Somebody, a woman years ago, she came to me and she said, she didn't say, hey, what are you giving to the church? Because Kelly and I are very sacrificial when it comes to church. And again, everything that we give goes into a fund specifically for those in our church who can't pay their rent, put food on the table, or they need counseling and can't afford it. That's what everything goes to us. Everything we give goes to that. Now, she said, not what are you giving? She says, what are you not giving and why? totally changed my entire way of giving because you, you can become like, you might be a tither. You might say, oh, well, I give 10% of the church and that's more than most people. And you're right. But that's not the end. Like, but because it has not, that's not a hard issue. I, I could very easily go, man, I give a ton of money. I don't need to give any more. I'm good. But what are you holding on to that is yours that God's like, let it go. And here's, here's what we do. Kelly and I, my wife and I, we say, here's what we're going to give. Cause this is something that we can do. It's a little stretch. And then what we do is go one step further because this is my faith. This is where God has to show up. And you've heard me say it for years if you've been around here, money is never about money. It's always about trust. It's always about will God show up and provide for me if I step out for him? And the answer is 100% true, yes. Every single time he does that. I'm not telling you, and because we don't do that here, I'm not telling you that if you write a big check that God's gonna put that back. If, God, if you write a $10,000 check, guess what? When you go check your bank account, you're down $10,000. 
you know, that's, we don't say it's like, you know, we match it. It's not about that. It's about us being on mission together to make a difference in the world because this world does not captivate our minds and hearts. That's who we are. We're Christians. Luke 4, 18 is just such a powerful image of that. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. In Jeremiah 29, um, God is talking to Jeremiah. And it's an amazing thing because Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, has destroyed Jerusalem. He came in, wiped it out. And what he did was he took all the people in Jerusalem. And this is what he did. This is so wicked. He took all the people from Jerusalem and he scattered them all over the Babylonian empire. He changed their names. He changed their religion. He changed their geography. He took their families away from them and they were all by themselves. I think sometimes you and I forget how important the church is and how important family is. Because listen, you may not agree with everybody else on everything in the room, but if we agree on Jesus, we have everything. We're a family. It's what we do. We are Christians. We're followers of Jesus. And we, are fought, we belong to one another. And so here's what God writes to them. This is just so amazing to me because it speaks to our need for our city right now. It says this, here's what I want you to do. I know that you've been scattered, all of you Israelites, you've been scattered into Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. A couple of things just to see. You want me to do what, God? You want me to pray for the blessing, the prosperity of the city that just destroyed my family? That's what you want me to do? And God's like, that's exactly what I want you to do. Because look, even though what Nebuchadnezzar did was evil, and actually he will be judged for it in the Bible later. But it says this, the great river carried you into exile. My will carried you in exile. It seems terrible right now, but I am with you in exile. The city right now is a city of exiles. You know why? Because if you came from another church that's busted up right now and your pastor did a stupid thing or something happened leadership-wise and it was a fail, you're the healthiest ones because you're here. Others just bailed. And I don't even blame them. But they are spiritual exiles. They are what the Bible calls orphans. Because they don't have the mother. They don't have the church. And I want us to pray for our city. And I want you to pray for this. When someone says, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I want you to think about the implication of that. Here's, here, here it is. I mean, I get it. We've been hurt by the church too before. I get it. We've tell, we're telling that story in the video that we're releasing, that we released last week. We're talking about that, okay? But, but listen, if you came to me and you said, hey, Mike, I think you're awesome, but I can't stand your wife. I'm going to be like, cool, I, we can't be friends. Why? That's my bride. You can't say to the Father, I love you, I hate your bride. We are the church. And our job is to help the exiles who have been carried into exile by the circumstances of their world. We pray to the Lord for the city that we live in, Orlando, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We don't work against the people around us, even if we disagree with them. We work for them, with them, and we pray for them. That the Lord God Almighty would come to know them and that they will receive him. And here's what we're gonna do. Christmas Eve, I'm gonna give a gospel message and I want to partner with you. It's gonna be filled with family and fun and all that. It's gonna be great. But I don't wanna miss the opportunity for someone to take a next step because I believe someone's eternity will be, many someone's eternities will be changed. And I need you guys to bring them to this 
service so that they can hear that message. And hopefully not only will we see their lives change, but we'll see generations of their families changed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you right now with humble hearts, acknowledging that all that we have today is because the great river went through our life and brought us to where we are. It is you, you are king, you are supreme, you are glorious, but we, God, are in desperate need in Central Florida because there's so many who are uncertain about you who used to be certain. Pain they came across, pulled them off course. Help us, God, to be able to encourage them, support them, to pray for them, to love them, God. We understand where they're at, Father, but we don't want them to stay there. Help us who are strong, help those who are weak in their faith right now. God, we pray that during the Christmas Eve services that we would see a great and mighty work take place with you. It's in your name we pray, amen.